On this edition of the Bill Kelly Show podcast with Scott Radley filling in for Bill Kelly, uh, we're talking about Tim Horton's new innovation lab. They have built a downtown Toronto new facility, new restaurant where they are sampling a bunch of mysterious, non-Tim Hortons-y kind of stuff. Seven or eight different ways of brewing coffees and fancy gourmet donuts and all kinds of other things. Is this the future of Tim Hortons? Marvin Ryder will join us to talk about that. There is a lawyer in Toronto who is trying to get standing in court to speak on behalf of animals. Should our courts be listening to people who claim to represent animals so they can bring lawsuits for cruel and unusual punishment or other things? And Woodstock, the 50th anniversary of Woodstock is coming up. You probably know that, right? 1969, right after the moon landing, we all went to Yasger's farm and dropped acid and listened to music in the rain and the mud. Well, they're trying to redo that, minus the acid and the mud and the rain. Not going so well. Alan Cross joins us to talk about why. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Marvin Ryder has uh, has popped into the studio from the Negroot School of Business. Thanks for popping in. Glad to be here. Tim Hortons uh, is experimenting with some new branding. They've got something called the Innovation Cafe, which has opened in Toronto. Now, this is way more upscale than your typical Tim Hortons. In fact, the, the PR person for Tim Hortons described it as a modern interpretation of the Tim Hortons brand. It has 12 dream donut flavors, including maple bacon, blueberry hibiscus, hazelnut buttercream, and brown butter and sea salt, uh, each for $1.99 or about double the cost of a regular flavor. Uh, and Tim's global marketing chief acknowledges the store's clean design and Instagram-ready treats are tailored to young urban professionals. Uh, this, however he says, is just an experiment. The Tims that you've grown up and grown used to, it's not going anywhere. This is just a, eh, let's see what happens. Um, is he right? Do you think he's right, or do you think that if this thing works, this is the new face of Tim Hortons? No, I don't think it's the new face of Tim Hortons. So let's come at this in two ways. The, they call it an innovation cafe, and, and the first thing it's doing, and I, I can't stress this enough, it's a live test market for the firm. So in this uh, location, you didn't mention it, but they're trying out seven different brewing techniques, cold brewing, something called nitrous brewing. I have no idea how nitrogen gets involved with coffee, but they're trying them out to see how consumers react. And conceivably, if consumers really, really loved something, what was that maple bacon donut or something? Well, all right, let's roll that out to other places. So on one hand, it's this live laboratory and Tim Hortons needs this. I used to actually think their laboratory was over on Dorval Drive, there was a two-story Tim Hortons there for years where they tested out a lot of things, but they've since closed it. So they need a laboratory someplace. But then the flip side of this innovation is aimed at clearly the millennial market. Now, the millennial market's big in really only six cities in Canada, the, the six all over a million. Hamilton's not a bad-sized city, but we're in the tier down. We're about 750,000 when you throw in Burlington. But uh, Calgary, Edmonton, Vancouver, Ottawa, Toronto, and Montreal have a high percentage of millennials. And millennials have one thing that we know in spades as marketers, and that's a love of innovation. They just like new things. Why? Because they're new. Uh, two years from now, we don't like it anymore because it's not new. Quick example, remember Pokemon Go, mm-hmm. where you had to chase the Pokemon and build your gym? And what happened to all of that? Do you see roving bands? Of pe- no, because, oh, that was, that's, that's two years. That's not 2017. Uh, how about that face app that allows you to scan yourself and see what you look like in 30 years? 
I know I did something wrong because when I asked it to show me what I looked like in 30 years, it showed me a tombstone. But, <laughs> but uh, for, for younger people, it's a wonderful bit of innovation. And so uh, you'd be crazy today to ignore the millennial market. And whether you're Starbucks or Tim Hortons or McDonald's, you want to try some different formats. If this format does catch on to some way, they will roll it out, but it won't be the new face of Tim Hortons. It would be a part of a face of Tim Hortons in those six markets. Well, you just touched on a couple other companies. This is, this is, Tim Hortons is certainly not the first company no. to dip their toe into this testing something. I mean, McDonald's is a perfect example. McDonald's today looks nothing like McDonald's would have in when I was a kid mm-hmm. going in 1970 after hockey. Uh, it, it is an entirely different, it's supposed to look like a cafe and be more upscale. And it also means you can charge more for your products if it looks nicer and appears nicer. Exactly. You know, um, our nice friends at Starbucks who've never shied away from a high price point have gone even higher now with another kind of coffee, $9 a cup. That's not the one that mom and dad are getting on the way to the hockey rink in the morning when they have to wake up. But for, for $9, it gives people, we call it an affordable luxury. And these millennials, something again we know about them is they love to treat themselves affordable luxuries is the way they live their game. Now, that might be a pair of jeans that are a little more expensive than normal, but it might be uh, a food treat that's a little more pricey or a drink treat that's a little more pricey. Also, millennials don't uh, exactly love coffee. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, uh, most people grow up drinking coffee. They either have it black or with some cream or sugar. But uh, the iced frappuccino, the the coffee-type beverages that have got the caffeine in them, but to true coffee aficionados, they go, that's not, that's not coffee. That's, you know, that's like an energy drink. That's like a Red Bull. Well, that's, that's what the millennials want. So they've got to experiment with them. And here's the other reason they have to experiment with them. Whether we like it or not, Tim Hortons is still highly, highly, highly dependent on the Canadian market. Now they are doing steps to expand internationally, but when you've got more than 4,500 locations in Canada, how are you going to keep growing your revenues? You can't build that many more locations. I joke that Tim Hortons is coming to a kitchen near you. That's how saturated they've got the market. So then how do I grow my revenues? And that's the experiments. Uh, Two weeks ago, they announced, for instance, they were doing the Beyond Beef Burgers. I've never thought of Tim Hortons as a burger place, but this is part of that innovation they have. Well, they have a new tweet today. Did you see the one today about no. it? It is now the plant-based eggs in their breakfast ah, sandwiches. Okay. I didn't know you could make eggs out of plants. Apparently you can. And I think they're also working on plant-based bacon, so you could just do everything plant-based. See, I'm all for everything up until there. There, there is a line that you cannot cross, and bacon is the sacros- sacrosanct place. Well, well, we'll see if you say that 30 minutes from now, because <laughs> to get that bacon, you've got to kill a pig, and, and you know, as the, well, the lawyers reason. get involved, you may not be able to do that anymore. Uh, But then, of course, by the way, you'll have people going to court trying to advocate on behalf of plants. So this cycle continues. Is there an element, because you've just talked about a a lot of different things. There's a lot of things I want to jump into in the time we have. But is there an element of panic here that when you're trying to expand your business, you're trying to keep up with all the competition? Is it, we have got to find something that is (laughs) going to really click with the millennials long term so that we don't become obsolete? Yeah. I don't like, I don't quite like the word panic because uh, Tim Hortons had not had not had a big decline. They'd urgency? Be, they'd be, well, I think urgency is probably a better word. It's not panic. This is not a company teetering on the brink of catastrophe that has to throw a lifeline out there. But this, they have to recognize this. So 
you and I can talk about millennials and we sometimes talk about them the way you might talk about uh, looking at Martians from another planet, but the reality is the millennials are going to become tomorrow's consumers. And if you don't find a way to connect with them now and you ignore them, then in 10 years, 20 years, they're not going to know your brand at all. So you have to connect. And, and th by the way, this is always true, whether it was the 60s flower children or the, you know, the power yuppies of the 80s, you've got to keep finding a way to keep in touch. So or it would be, it would be bad business not to do something like Absolutely. this. Absolutely. You've got to find a way. You, you've come back to millennials a few times and Gen Z and whatever else we want to call it. Yep. it. It's an interesting group because we hear a lot that this group, and I, I mean, I hate to always, I, we, put I a we put a name on it and then you lump everybody in together right. and they're not all the same, but nonetheless, uh, this group, they can't afford houses. They don't have stable jobs. They don't have the income they'd like. And you would think, well, then that group's not going to be the group that buys itself a $9 cup of coffee. And yet that seems, we seem to be dealing with some things that a previous generation would say, who would do that? This, this mm -hmm. is, as you say, the experimental or the experiential or whatever else, mm -hmm. this is where they will spend their money. Yes, at least for a while. So our, our studies of millennials suggest that unlike the previous generation who married by the time they were 25 and then sought their suburban dream, having a house in the suburbs, raising the 2.3 children in the yard, uh, at this point, most of them are not thinking of being married and having children at least until the age of 30 and perhaps even later than that. So what are they doing? Well, they are living downtown. Uh, are they buying houses? Not necessarily. They might be renting, but very urban existences in also often very small spaces. If you've been to some of these condos in downtown Toronto, I have a closet that's bigger than some of them. So as a result, they sleep in those condos and that they rent or, or purchase, but they don't want to live in them. So at night, after a work day, they come home, shower up, and then they go back out into the world and they recreate at bars and restaurants and coffee shops. And that be, that becomes their way of living. I don't do that. When I go home, I'm, I'm welcome to my, my respite at night in my suburban oasis, and it's great. But for them, it's all about reconnecting with people. And so these are experiences. That's the only way I can explain it. They don't want the experience in their house. They want the experience elsewhere. But also, I don't want last year's experience or the year before. And if we did not have the millennials, probably all the boom in restaurants downtown Hamilton doesn't get going right now. That is who is driving that exactly. one, for example. Exactly. And the condos and, and those other sort of urban renewal things you're seeing down on the gentrification of the North End, that, much of that is driven by the millennials. So here's the confusing part for me about this Tim Hortons idea. And again, I, I understand from your explanation that you have to do this to try and keep in touch and everything else. But Tim Hortons has in this country a particular place where they have mm -hmm. a niche. And we have Starbucks now on almost as many street corners as Tim Hortons. Mm -hmm. And we have little individual uh, independent mm -hmm. coffee shops that'll grind beans with exotic names and yep. th do their own thing to stand up. Yep. Does Tim Hortons run a risk? if they get in, if they try to nudge their way into this market of leaving mm -hmm. the niche that they have built and they hold on to there, you know what? Let Starbucks have the $9 coffee. We're going to be Tim Hortons, mm -hmm. the coffee you pick up on the way to hockey or the way to work. Do, do you run a risk of moving out of the comfort zone? Right. You have, you have the risk of repositioning yourself. So again, go back to this idea, will, it, will this concept expand? And I said, maybe to six cities. In going to those six cities, you won't see the name Tim Hortons on it at all that what they'll do is they'll open their own version of this. They'll call it something else. Maybe Timothy Hortons or, or, uh, or um, very, something very else. Indite, yes. yes. Well, they'll, they'll, they'll give it a different name. Much like McDonald's. Now, 
today this doesn't seem like such a smacking innovation, but in Europe, McDonald's were seen as kind of a low-end fast food place, and they wanted to go after the coffee market, so they introduced the McCafe. And when I first saw them in Europe nearly a decade ago, they looked nothing like uh, a McDonald's. They had the bleached wood and the, the big fancy espresso machines. And yeah, $4 for a cup of coffee wasn't very Tim Hortons-like, or excuse me, very McDonald's-like. But by God, they found a market. And so they expanded, but they didn't put McDonald's on it. They called it McCafe. Now, I think you'll see the same thing here. Limited, probably only to those six biggest cities, probably no more than 100 locations possible across those six cities. And they'll put a different name on it because they don't want to lose the people who know and love Tim Hortons. But and that's the challenge. You don't, As you correctly say, you don't want to confuse people. You don't want to try to be all things to all people. But if they happen to catch fire here with this innovation cafe, they'll replicate it, but they'll take the Tim Hortons name completely off. Because it looks like they tried that at one point a few years ago when they did their big push, and it was a huge marketing push for the Tim Hortons dark coffee, and it looked very, I don't want to say new Coke, but it was because they weren't getting rid of their old one. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, do, do they even serve the dark coffee? I don't even know if they do anywhere, but you certainly don't see the push for it. It's as if it was like, right. okay, this didn't quite, I, the sense is this didn't quite go as we'd expected. It didn't, maybe it did. I don't know. But we, have you seen an ad for dark, Tim Hortons dark in the last year? No, or two? although I still see trucks with the dark roast on the side and it's still available out there. So Scott, another thing maybe I can share with you is that I teach marketing for a living. And one of the things I try to tell everyone who, who tries to practice marketing is this is not a science, it's an art. And you get good at an art by practicing, practicing, practicing. So what does that mean? I think people have to constantly experiment and tweak, whether it's their product mix or their pricing mix or the way they distribute products. For instance, you know, try skip the dishes, try Uber Eats, try it for three three months, six months. Measure how it goes. If it doesn't meet your needs, stop doing it. But but don't get set in a rut that there's only one way of doing things because that can also get tired over a while. So I give Tim Hortons full marks for experimenting with all of these things. Some of them stick. I'm not sure three years from now they'll still be serving Beyond Meat patties and eggs and burgers and the rest of it. But it seems that this moment is the right thing to do and they'll measure it. And if the sales go down, they'll, they'll get rid of it. It's a bit like flavors. I, I can remember a time that I loved, I just absolutely loved their oatmeal chocolate chunk cookies. Can't get them anymore. That flavor didn't sell enough. Even though I loved it, I didn't love it enough to keep the brand alive. So they keep changing. Some seem to be classic, the, the basic glaze or the chocolate dip, but others come and go as the flavors. And that's what you have to do. You know, as you're talking about this, the one thing that comes to mind, because you mentioned before about you, it's fashionable or it's good for right now and we want to try something different as it goes along. A couple of years ago, I remember I had a friend who owned a bunch of restaurants and he says, we could not get in Bud Light Lime. That was that, that summer when Bud Light Lime was, couldn't even buy it. It was, and mm, you don't, I mean, maybe, I, I assume it's still around, but you certainly don't see a crush on for it anymore. It's now whatever. I mean, it does seem to be all marketing though. It really does. Is this really about the flavors or is this about all marketing? I, I don't think I don't think it's all marketing. It, it speaks to, again, to the consumers that we are a fickle lot. What we like this year, in some cases, we like next year and the year after. And other times we have this search for innovation just around the corner. There might be something a little better. So the Bud Light Lime came about because of Corona and everyone putting a lime in a Corona bottle. Well, gosh, we can't sell limes in a pack of of uh, Molson or Coors or what have you. How do we, how do we, oh, we'll put the flavor in. Uh, Coke and Pepsi have done this too. Think of all the variations, whether it's cherry Pepsi or, or Coke with lime, Coke with raspberry, Coke with something else. They find ways to innovate. And sometimes they catch on and sometimes it's just a two-year thing. 
Is there a... Makes my job very interesting, well, by the is, way. Is there a... You said that Tim Hortons, and clearly we know they're not a, te- a company te- teetering on the brink of no. trouble. But is there a death battle in the coffee world in Canada? Because you have so many. McDonald's has clearly set its sights on Tim Hortons with his dollar yep. coffees and going right after yep. it and and Starbucks. And all. I mean, how how saturated can the coffee market possibly get in this country before somebody goes down? Well, that's a good question. I, I, I don't think it'll be a big player initially. I think you'll see more of the little independents because they, they just can't compete. They buy their beans by the bag. McDonald's and Tim Hortons buy it by the boatload, and it's hard to compete when you're doing it like that. But uh, is there a death battle? Yes, there is no doubt about it. Tim Hortons and McDonald's are engaged in arm-to-arm combat. This is why earlier this year Tim Hortons responded to McDonald's with their own loyalty card. You know, buy, I think it was six or eight at, uh, at McDonald's, you get one free. Well, suddenly now Tim Hortons is on and they expanded. Didn't have to be coffee. Any purchase will get you a stamp and go from there. They're clearly locked in. And they basically ignored Starbucks. They've left the high end of the market to Starbucks and the other premium roasters that are out there. But I, I'm not sure it's a battle to the death. But clearly, McDonald's feels they've gained on this. And, um, and another great example of this is when the Roll Up the Rim to Win contest happens, normally in February and early March. It's the exact same time that uh, McDonald's both gives away some coffee, but then goes to a buck a cup, uh, really, to take them on. And so, yeah, there is, a, there is a battle. But McDonald's can live without selling coffee. McDonald's could still thrive without coffee. Could Tim Hortons thrive if people decided they weren't going to drink Tim Hortons coffee anymore? You know, that's, that's the interesting question. So once upon a time, we thought of Tim Hortons strictly as a coffee shop. I joke today that Tim Hortons is Canada's bake shop today. That You remember all those lovely little independent bakeries where you used to stop and get cookies and pies and cakes? They've almost all disappeared. There are still some around. But they really declined because Tim Hortons moved into that bakery space. And now they're trying to move into the lunch space and the, and the dining space again with these burgers and these all-day breakfast sandwiches. So, it, you know, again, they're always a little bit of morphine. When there's an opportunity, we may do a little more of this, we may do a little more of that. Again, it's about survival. I wonder what Tim Hortons would think if he ever could be brought back and could walk into a Tim Hortons downtown Toronto today. Well, I don't, obviously, I don't know what Tim Hortons would think, but Ron Joyce, uh, you know, unfortunately, Mr. Joyce passed away not that long ago, but he, he said this wasn't the company that he had envisioned. Mm. Not that that was a bad thing. He understood this is what they had to do to survive, but he said himself he would never have come up with many of these ideas. You said that they're not going to be called Tim's. We've got to go, but you're not going to be called Tim's at these new places. Do you know what Tim Hortons' real first name was? It wasn't Tim. No, I have no idea. Tim Horton. So, so here's what you call it now. You go with his real first name. He was, his fr- real name was Miles Horton. Miles. Imagine if we'd had Miles bits now instead of Tim bits. Yeah. So, so now you just call okay. it like Miles. See, my bit of trivia is uh, Bobby Hull's middle name. Robert Marvin Hull. Oh, Marvin, of course. Yes, Robert Marvin Hull. Yeah, it was on his check when he signed with the Winnipeg Jets for I a like, million bucks. I like to remember that. Marvin Ryder, thank you for doing this. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, there is a retired lawyer who has been lobbying, who's upset and working for other people who share the same view, but who is upset that rat traps are being sold. Certain rat traps are being sold by Walmart and Canadian Tire and others, specifically the glue traps. And the argument is that these glue traps are cruel, they punish the animals, they lead to a long and lingering death, that you're trying to get rid of the rodents in your house, but this is an inappropriate way to do it. And so this lawyer has gone to court and has made the argument that, well, rats and mice and other vermin can't speak for themselves, so humans and advocates and 
activists should be able to be given voice, be able to give voice to animals and be able to speak for animals in court. Essentially, they should be the voices of animals in the courtroom. They want to make the case that these traps are illegal, are unfair, are cruel, and therefore should be banned. But in order to do that, as I say, in our system, you have to have someone who has standing to to speak to the issue. Well, is this a good idea? Is it a good idea to throw open the idea that suddenly now animals can have a voice in court, in a human Well, there are only human courts, I guess, but in a human court. Let me bring in uh, Daniel Walker, who is a lawyer with Bobila Walker Law. Uh, He joins us now. Daniel, thanks for doing this today. No problem. Thank you for having me. Uh, Let's go to the broad question on this right off the bat. Is this a good idea to open this door? Um, Well, to be frank with you, I think it's the evolution of the law, right? In Canada, we have a system called the common law, um, and it is bound bound to be one case. Um, that's going to change how we perceive these things. Animals already have protections under the criminal law. We already have the OSPCA, which seeks to enforce many of those elements. We have human rights organizations. And looking at it objectively and stepping back, removing the issue whether these are vermin or rats, um, there has to be a way for the court to address issues of injustice or uh, violations of of, uh, certain provisions within the criminal code if those provisions are not being enforced by the government. So what we currently have in Ontario is we have a system basically where the OSPCA um, has been crippled because of some court decisions that they can't certainly be enforcing the law. There have been certain court decisions and the court has given OSPCA and the Ontario government up until January of next year to really get in line with the court orders. So we have a certain gap that exists in the province where really um, not much is being done. And so I think rightfully a lot of animal rights activists uh, stepping in and asking the questions, well, if the government is not acting on this issue or any other animal rights issue, um, who then would have the standing to appear before the court to ask the court to do something? And if we for a moment remove the issue of rat, let's say hypothetically this was a dog or a cat or an elephant, something more cuddly or furry, who then would be stepping in uh, to speak on behalf of this animal if their rights per se were being violated or if they were not being treated humanely? And I think in a society where we are advancing to give animals more and more freedoms and more protections, it's bound to happen that a court at some point is going to step in and say, well, wait a minute, this organization has done so much work. Why should they not be given standing to deal with an injustice that may be happening to this particular animal. And you you said correctly off the top that there are already provisions in the criminal code that deal with some uh, animal issues. If you torture your dog or something like that, you, you can be charged. So does that mean that the SPCA at this point is able to speak in court for animals, technically, legally? So, so at, at the moment, what's happening is the, the applicants in this case and the organization is called the Canadians for Animal Protection. They've basically made the argument in their filing that the criminal code prohibits a person in control of a captive animal from doing anything to put that animal into distress, to torture it, etc., which is, in essence, in the criminal code. It's one of the sections, section 44. 446.1. So the applicants in this case are arguing basically 
that that code is being violated and so are some other provisions in the code and that nothing is being done to enforce those provisions. And as a result, they're coming to the court and saying nobody is doing anything, it's not being enforced, and we as an animal rights organization are asking to be given standing. So now why that, why ha- why would they need standing though? And my question is for this reason, could they not, could this lawyer, could someone not simply sue uh, civilly, as opposed to going through the criminal courts, could they not just sue Canadian Tire or sue Walmart and ask them to take it out? Or do they still have to be able to speak for the animal to do that? So this is actually a civil claim. So this is not a criminal claim. So this is actually an application that was brought in the Superior Court of Justice. And so it is a civil claim. Okay. But as part of the civil claim and part of their factum and their submissions, the applicants have explained why it is that they're taking the steps that they're taking, because they obviously have to pass a high threshold hurdle of the, the public interest standing. Um, so, and and they, it's a three-part legal test, and they'll have to explain to the court, you know, the, the various steps as to why they're doing it, um, et cetera. And the court will then look at it and say, hmm, do you have standing to bring this? Because at the, la- the last thing that the court wants to encourage is to basically permit every individual to permit you, uh, a radio show host, to bring an application against the government for something else. Because normally when people sue, they're personally invested in the lawsuit. They've suffered personal damages, personal distress, personal harm. And so the, the case directly affects them. In this case, obviously, you and I have really no direct effect in terms of monetary damages from a rat that may be dying in a garage somewhere in someone's home. So the, the, the standing issue is the, the biggest hurdle here that the applicants have to overpass uh, in order to show that why should they be given standing before the court to argue on behalf of this animal. Is there precedent for this anywhere? Do we know? Has this been done elsewhere and people been given standing for animals? So what we have, I mean, both sides, and I've looked at the arguments of both sides, both sides make a compelling argument as to why the case should or should not proceed. We've had a very big case in Alberta that was decided a few years ago. I'm sure your listeners are aware of um, Lucy the elephant in the Edmonton Zoo. So there were, it's, it's a female elephant that has been living there for a number of years, and a number of animal rights organizations have basically brought forward an application um, that Lucy should be, should be moved and that she should be taken care of, that there was inadequate and illegal um, conduct by the zoo, etc. So in that case, the court did not grant the animal rights organization standing to save this elephant. However, there was a very, very passionate and very legally strong opinion by the dissenting judge in that case who made a very strong argument that the organization should be given standing. Now, that's number one. Number two, the applicant in this case has also argued in the case that we've recently had over the last few years where sex workers were given standing. I don't know if you remember that, but Mm -hmm. we had a case where... So even those individuals that brought the application were former sex workers. So they also had to pass the hurdle. They had no direct or monetary damages, so no direct involvement at that point in time, but they were giving standing because they were former sex workers. And the applicants have argued in this case that the law has really evolved and moved with the time and that the legal test has slightly been modified and should permit them to have standing and have used the dissenting opinion of the, of the judge in the Alberta case with Lucy the Elephant to argue that the legal test should be, should be somewhat shifted. 
Um, and so I think it's going to be very interesting to see what the court will decide in this case, because at the end of the day, um, I mean, if you imagine the case even of the, the recent um, ban on um, showing dolphins and whales for on, on display for entertainment. I don't know if you remember that, yes, but we yep. recently passed that big legislation, right? So imagine hypothetically that um, that legislation didn't pass. Who could bring a lawsuit on behalf of the animals, on behalf of the dolphins and the whales, if they were suffering? And presumably nobody was enforcing the law, right? Presumably it, it could not be anyone other than people that had a direct investment in, partic- in that particular case. And so that's something that I don't think the courts were going to accept, and I think it would have been logical that it would most likely be someone, um, an animal rights organization, that would say, well, this is inhumane, this is torture, this is not just, and so we should have standing to address this issue. And I think it's, it's, it's the evolution of the law in this case. Right? So, so, Daniel, in this case, though, and, and this makes an interesting case, because yeah. the person, the lawyer who's arguing this and making this case right now okay. is saying that this particular method of killing animals is cruel. They haven't argued that all killing of rodents is cool, is cruel. Correct. Correct. They're simply saying this glue trap. Correct. So, so what happens, though, if this is successful? Because does this not then open the door a crack and then Pandora's box is open and now the next lawyer comes forward and says, okay, they're standing for animals. Uh, you have ruled that glue traps are cruel, but I'm going to argue that snap traps are cruel or live traps are cruel. This is going to, th- this invariably is going to open the door for other claims. Well, I, I mean, at the end of the day, I'm just going to give you, I'll address the question first, but obviously there, there's three parts to this test, right? The, the first part is there must be a serious issue about the validity of the legislation. There must either be directly or uh, somebody must be directly affected or have a genuine interest in the validity of the legislation, and there must be no other reasonable or effective way to bring the issue before a court. So presumably, if this matter was to go forward, right, the applicant in this type of case would have to show that using glue on these traps would be inhumane. So presumably expert evidence would need to be brought by both sides, and that issue would need to be discussed. And presumably that will then be decided by the court. Um, I do not think that using the argument of slippery slope um, is really acceptable here because that's the same argument that people have been using when we said, well, we should give protections to cats and dogs and other domesticated animals if we put this in the criminal code. Because at the end of the day, we entrusted our justice system and our courts and the lawyers that are involved in these cases are basically not going to open the floodgates and are going to be reasonable, right? Think of how long it took us to pass this legislation on the ban on dolphin and, and whale captivity. It took us literally 40 to 50 years for activists to actually get that legislation passed, right? So I, I don't think it's fair to say that suddenly that if we determine that a certain type of trap is not humane or should not be sold in stores, that that's somehow going to open up floodgates. Certainly, people will try to bring lawsuits, but we already have many, many frivolous lawsuits to begin with in our justice system, and we entrust our courts and the judges to basically say, this is a frivolous lawsuit, and we're not going to permit this to proceed. I, I, I find it difficult to imagine, though, that if the if the lawyer was not given uh, standing to speak for animals, and I, mm-hmm. I, I don't know if I'm even using the right word, but speak for animals, that's the best way we can say it, mm-hmm. that someone is not going to, if that were to happen... 
come forward immediately and say, well, you know what? Um, the beef industry, the pork industry, the fishing industry, the uh, chicken industry, where we're now killing animals, uh, that is inhumane. And therefore, we've got a lawsuit saying, I want to speak on behalf of all these animals that they should not be taken to slaughter for food. And, and I, I find it impossible to believe that's not the next step. That's right. Well, it's a, it's, a fair, it's a fair comment. However, again, I go back to, you know, the legal test, right? Um, the, court, the court basically says that there has to be no other reasonable and effective way to deal with this issue. And, for example, in the Lucy D. Elephant case, the court refused to give the animal rights organization standing because they said, well, you can file a complaint with the Human Rights Society in Alberta. You can file a complaint with other investigative authorities, etc. So courts have found a way to basically say, we're not going to entertain certain types of lawsuits. And I think, having practiced law in Ontario, I think the, the, the courts have done a pretty good job of turning these things away. There are already lawsuits happening all the time um, with respect to um, weeding out lawsuits that, are, that don't have credibility, right? But I think it can't be denied that 30, 40 years ago, if somebody killed a raccoon and stabbed him 20 times, they would have gotten away with it. And back in the day, people would say, well, if you criminalize that type of conduct, you're going to have, you know, you're going to have other things that are acceptable. And yet, love and behold, we have actually had cases where stabbing a raccoon 10 to 20 times has been classified under the criminal court as torture, and we're still fine, and we all still exist. And you made a great, you made a very interesting point right off the top, and that is, and I, I, I'm not having your exact words, but it's the natural progression of the law, that the law evolves. And, you know, I understand my connection here. I was thinking That's of right. when we passed uh, in Canada the assisted suicide law a while That's ago right. for people, yeah. the rule was, or the, the, the statement was, this is for adults only. It is a very slim a finite reason that you could do this. This will never be for children. And it was about two years down the road that now Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto is preparing uh, policies because they say it's inevitable that now someone's going to go to court and argue for children. Anytime the door opens in a law, someone else is going to push it a little further and a little further. That's what you just said at the beginning. It's the, right. it's the evolution right. of the law. That's right. And, 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 you know, and I go back to, you know, the, the, and I would urge your listeners to actually go online and read about this case because it's really a unique case about, about the elephant, uh, Lucy the elephant. Mm -hmm. And in that case, the Chief Justice Frazier, who reviewed the current state of the animal protection laws in Canada, basically said, quote, if animals are to be protected in any meaningful way, they or their advocates must be accorded some form of legal standing at law. And again, as a compassionate and understanding society, at some point, um, if nobody's stepping in, we have to ask, well, should there be some sort of mechanism? Should there be a little bit of leaning towards a certain way to permit advocates? And, and in this case, respectfully, I, Ms. Ms. Shore is, is a lawyer, but I think she is also appearing on behalf of an animal rights organization, right? And so she's making the argument that this is not just her as an individual, but it's a, a, a bunch of animal advocates that are making this argument. Because the question is, what if this was, let's say, a dog, and uh, a dog was being trapped this way um, and euthanized this way? Would we be having the same discussion? Or is it only that one certain type of animal we are okay with that that animal is killed that way, right? Dan got yeah. Daniel, I got to run, but I really no do appreciate your time today. That's Daniel thank Walker you. from Bobila Walker Law. Thank you so much thank for you. your Have insights. Have a good day. Bye-bye. 
You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. This later next month, August, we're already almost in August, 50th anniversary of Woodstock. And maybe some people who were listening were there. If you are, you have probably now, the brown acid has cleared your system. You stayed away from the stage so you didn't get zapped by the lightning. You've cleared off the mud. I mean, you may remember some of it even by now. Others of us, you know, we've just seen the movie and watched the documentary and heard the music and read the stories. Well, because it was the 50th, 50 is a big time. They were going to have a huge celebration, a big, big concert to honor the 50th anniversary of Woodstock. Supposed to have anyway, that's the operative word, because it seems that pretty much everything that could go wrong has gone wrong. I'm not going to give away all that good stuff because my next guest will. He's the one who's written the great story. Uh, His name is Alan Cross. He's with the Ongoing History of New Music. Love having him on here. Alan, thanks for doing this today. Oh, you're welcome. So things have not gone exactly as planned. Oh, uh, no. This is a dumpster (laughs) fire. This is a tire fire. This is something that is going to go down in the annals of the worst... planning for a music festival in, in the history of the world. And this is when we, Netflix has the show Fire on it right now. That's saying something. Well, okay, we have to separate the two. The Fire Festival turned out to be out-and-out fraud. They never had what they promised, and they sold a whole bunch of tickets to a whole bunch of gullible people who showed up to a whole lot of nothing. What we're seeing with, with Woodstock 50 is that no tickets have been sold. No one has shown up. And there's no fraud perpetrated on the public. It has just been a bad organizational nightmare. So let's walk through what happened here. So, so they've had 50 years to prepare for this. That's the first thing. But anyway, uh, walk through what the problems have been and how we've got to where we are. We first heard about this in January, which would be about right. Uh, you would expect that everybody had been planning for the last 18 months or so before the announcement came out of January. But uh, that turned out not to be true. But anyway... In January, we heard that, yes, there was going to be a 50th anniversary Woodstock someplace in up, upstate New York on that fabled weekend of August the 16th to the 18th, 50 years to the day since the original Woodstock. And uh, don't worry, we're going to announce a lineup soon. And, and yes, we will, we, we will announce when we're going to start selling tickets and VIP packages and all the rest of it. Then there was a period of silence. And we heard nothing from the Woodstock people. Michael Lang is the guy that was in charge. He is uh, the holder of all the rights to the original Woodstock. And he was the, he was the curly-haired guy who was in charge the first time. If you saw the documentary, he was the guy who was panicking because everything was going wrong then. That's right. That was him. He was also the guy behind the disaster that was 1994. I was there. It was awful. And the even greater disaster of 1999, which I did not go to because I was smarter than that. So he's going to do it for a fourth time. And uh, we eventually, and I think this was in March, we ended up with a lineup featuring about 80 artists from everything from John Fogarty and Melanie to Jay-Z and I think Ariana Grande. So it was a big festival. There were about 80 artists on the bill. And tickets will go on sale soon. Yeah, tickets. No, no, no. Don't worry. Tickets will go on sale soon. Well, there was nothing, and then nothing, and then nothing, and then nothing. And then when we get to the end of April, we hear that there has been a problem. The uh, it was supposed to be held at a racetrack called Watkins Glen International mm-hmm. Raceway, 
And uh, they didn't get around to applying for a permit from the county to hold the event until April the 7th. Tickets were supposed to go on sale April the 16th. Ah, ah, okay. So that permit was denied. There were a couple of appeals all denied. And in the meantime, the financial backers, a company from Japan called Dentsu Aegis, pulled out. There was a bunch of court cases involving what happened and who could announce the cancellation and where did this $18 million go and a bunch of other things. Uh, but Michael Lang soldiered on and he found another racetrack, which was a horse track uh, in Utica, New York. Uh, and once again, no, couldn't get the, the permit there. So then they asked for uh, permission to hold it in a place called Vernon, New York. And, and after five appeals, they were all turned down. It's not going to happen. And again, with all this, all the, these 80 artists have no idea what's happening. Tickets are not on sale. Uh, there's no sponsorship revenue coming in. Zero. Uh, meanwhile, other people associated with the festival, including the production people, the people that were supposed to build the stages and maintain the infrastructure and all that sort of stuff, they quit. They pulled out. I think there were three that have pulled out so far. So basically, here we are. The festival is supposed to start uh, three, two weeks from Friday, and we do have a venue now. But the venue is not in upstate New York. It's in Baltimore. It's at a amphitheater, kind of like the Budweiser stage called the Meriwether Post Pavilion. Uh, the original plan for Woodstock was to have it for 150,000 people at Watkins Glen. Uh, okay, well, they couldn't get the permits for that, and everything kind of got wrong with things like sewer and sanitary conditions and water and access roads and a bunch of other things. Uh, then they scaled it down to this horse racing track in Utica, and it was going to be 50,000 people. And now that they're at the Mary Post Merryweather Post Pavilion, uh, the, uh, it'll be 20,000 people. All the artists over the weekend were released from their contracts, so there is no lineup for Woodstock 50. Tickets are still not on sale, which really probably won't make any difference because the rumor is that all tickets will be free. So we've gone from this <laughs> mega, mega three-day concert at Watkins Glen to a free show at an amphitheater in, Boston, in, in Baltimore. Uh, it, and, and again, it, it's just a nightmare when it comes to these, the, the organization of everything. So to recap, you've got no venue, well you do now, but on your fourth venue, no lineup, no artists, no tickets, no sponsors. Now I'm not a promoter, I've never promoted a concert, but that sounds less than optimal. It does, yes. Um, um we're not even sure, based on what I read this morning, we're not even sure if they have a permit for Mary Weatherford's <laughs> Pavilion. Uh, they just have dates. Okay. Michael Lang, the first time, 50 years ago, uh, obviously pulled magic and pixie dust out of his rear end to make the first Woodstock fly, because based on what has happened since then, there's no other explanation for how he made it work. Well, that first Woodstock really didn't fly. It, it only flew after the film came out, and... The, uh, the the entire Woodstock myth and legend began to take form. Remember, there were 400,000 people at Max Yasker's farm, and a lot of those people came in for free. Right. So they're really... This, this actually sounds an awful lot like that when you look yes. back at it. Yes, it does. Well, they broke down the... the or they came through the fences or whatever. So that was a, a, a major disaster, wasn't it? So we got the film and the soundtracks that it really started to take shape. 
1994, it was held in a place called uh, Socrates, New York. We remember. Uh, and that was 300,000 people, and it rained. It was miserable. Uh, I remember the porta potties overflowing, and uh, how always a nice touch. Oh God, and and how nice it was uh, to spend. I think it was four or five dollars for a bottle of water. Then in '99, they had it at an Air Force base in Rome, New York, which had and it was blisteringly hot, like a hundred degrees Fahrenheit, and again there was no shade because it's at a military base with nothing but exposed concrete. So, <laughs> it, again, people were, were upset at the high prices for food and for water. And uh, then bands like Limp Biscuit and a few others came on and somehow channeled the rage of all those people out in the field, which resulted in vandalism, in fires, in sexual assaults, in a variety of injuries. It was, uh, it was terrible, absolutely terrible. And now people are, are thinking, oh, well, we'll do it again this time, but we'll do it right. Please. Yeah. You've had three kicks at the can. All three kicks failed, if you want to get right down to it. And you want to do it again? Well, good luck with that. Uh, why would you not, for the 50th anniversary, and I'm not being silly with this, why would you not just go back to Yasger's farm and do it there? Unavailable. Now, the interesting thing is that there is a pavilion on that site uh, that recognizes the historical significance of Woodstock 69, uh, and I think it's called the Bethel Arts Center, uh, they're, they're having their own little Woodstock. They have with their little amphitheater, and I don't know how big it is, but it's not very, very large. But uh, they're on the site, and uh, they are going to have their 50th anniversary Woodstock, and it seems to be going along just fine. In fact, uh, John, John Fogarty uh, defected from Woodstock 50 to the uh, this other little tinier Woodstock. I, I made it there years ago. I, I Like most idiots, I thought when I was driving through upstate New York, went to Woodstock, New York, thinking, oh, that's where it was. I forgot, and then they had to redirect me to Bethel. And, and there was a, a, just a lone hippie sitting by the, they didn't have the pavilion then, they just had the monument, and he, for like a buck or two, he would take your picture. And that's how he made his living. Um, they're saying now, the last thing I read, that the headliner of this thing, if they can actually pull it together now in Maryland, the headliner of this uh, might be Miley Cyrus. And I'm not going to disparage Miley Cyrus for those who love her, but I think if you'd gone back 50 years and looked into the time machine and said, 50 years from now, when we redo this, the person who's going to be the main event for this thing is going to be Miley Cyrus. I think they might have said, yeah, you know what, let's just leave it at this one and keep our memories. Yeah, I, I, I think so. Even when I was there in 94, there were a couple of remnants from 69. I mean, Wavy Gravy, the, uh, mm. the stage MC, was, was there. I can't remember the, who else played because it was such a miserable experience for me. Uh, but, yeah, you're right. Miley Cyrus is going to save Woodstock 50, and she is going to be the face and uh, heroine of, of what was supposedly the, the greatest counterculture musical event in the history of mankind. Yeah, good luck with that. Thank you very much. But at least it, at least it will cost you nothing to go see her, maybe parking, maybe a, you know, a $20 glass of beer, but that's it. Uh, around that same time, just for the record, if you stay around here in Toronto, Howard Jones is at the X, so uh, <laughs> you, can, you and, can have Miley Cyrus or Howard Jones, same yeah, price. Plus you get all your rides. There you go. And those tiny little donuts. Is there a is there a lesson here for uh, because we've had lots of these big festivals since then you talked about a few of them we've had the um the Live 8 Live Aid Live 8 Live I can't remember what the third one was th- that they tried to do that 
if you catch lightning in a bottle, because I think Live Aid and Woodstock can sort of be categorized in a similar kind of vein where the, it yes. was perfect. You caught this lightning in a bottle, just keep the lightning in that bottle and don't try and sprinkle it all over the place because it seems to never work when you try to replicate it. You know, you get that feeling, right? I mean, leave it in, leave it alone. But uh, just like with movies, you got to have the sequels because there's money to be made. Could we could we include the SARS concert into that list? You know, I think the SARS, Stars, uh, Stars concert has been woefully uh, forgotten in all this because that was, I think, if you go back and look at the Guinness Book of World Records and a couple of other places, I think that that was the largest free music festival in the history of free music festivals. And there was close to half a million people there. So, yeah, you know, when people talk about large gatherings like this, they almost always forget SARSFest. Which was a great show. And it went off without a hitch. I don't think there was any arrests or injuries or anything. I mean, it was amazing that that many people. I don't remember. I remember there were some traffic problems, but that's all I can. Yeah, you're right. I don't remember anything really going terribly wrong other than the things that usually happen. Like it being a million degrees and water and all the rest. Yeah, and the cell phone service was terrible and all the rest of it. But uh, yeah, it was, we don't get enough credit for that one. So just before I let you go, because we only have a minute or so left here, is this, so we, again, we talk about lightning in a bottle. We've got this great, in retrospect anyway, Woodstock Festival, the original one that people look back on now is this seminal moment. And we've got Live Aid and that became something else. And SARS, thankfully, there hasn't been a, SARS Fest anyway, there hasn't been an attempt to replicate it. Is this just that even when you have these great events that are for something like Woodstock, which was, what was it, Peace, Love, and... Music. music. I mean, it was yeah. it was it was supposed to be very pure. That ultimately, eventually, the lure of money is going to trump everything anyway. Now you remember when? Got to remember that when Woodstock '69 happened, it was only two years into the era of the outdoor rock festival. The first big one was really Monterey Pop in 1967. So it was still um, a novelty. It was still something that could be looked upon, you know, with a certain naivete and. And 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 uh, you know stars in your eyes. Uh, since then, it's become big business, uh, and as a result, uh, it's it, you're never going to see anything you know as altruistic as that ever again. I just hope that Michael Lang might say, you know, this I'll retire after this one. For, I mean, he should have of anybody in the music industry after the first Woodstock and the legend and the myth that that's become. He should have the most sway, I would think, of just about anyone in the business. And okay. and I just don't see it. Has he done anything other than Woodstock shows? Interviews. I, I want, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know, as a promoter, <clears throat> excuse me, as a promoter, I don't know if he's actually done anything beyond that. Uh, that would be worth looking up. He may have after, if you watch the documentaries, I know you have, but if you watch the documentary, he may have taken 30 or 40 years to recover from that, that yeah, first that's one. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's true. Because that, the first one was, was, like I say, I mean, it's been mythologized, but it was, it was not a pretty situation. Alan Cross, you can uh, see him online. You can listen to his ongoing history of new music. We always love having you on. Thanks for doing this, Alan. Anytime. Uh, Woodstock 50. So if you want to go down to Maryland and maybe watch Miley Cyrus, maybe for free, maybe. Or as I say, stay home. There's lots of concerts on at the X. They even have, get this, they even have on that weekend a free Woodstock weekend at the X. You can watch a bunch of the music from Woodstock, not have to go to Maryland, not have to deal with all that stuff. And you can, as Alan says, do the rides as well. It all sounds pretty good. 
The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.